This is the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, episode 81. Welcome to the Hack Your Wealth Podcast, where we teach wealth building hacks for lawyers, engineers, and MBAs. I'm your host, Andrew Chen. All right, thanks so much again for tuning into the podcast. For today's episode, I invited another guest to come and share their tips and strategies and insights with us. So before we jump into that, as always, I want to invite you to join the private Hack Your Wealth Facebook group. You can access that at hackyourwealth.com slash FB. Definitely encourage you to join us there. It is a place for us to connect, have a two-way dialogue. I'm in there every single day, often multiple times a day, and I try to respond to every question and comment there. And it's a place where people can ask about financial independence, early retirement, tax strategies, real estate investing, side business income, online income, career transitions, career advice, or just ask about whatever's on their mind related to personal finance or career-related issues. Definitely encourage you to check that out. It's a great friendly, helpful group of people, and we would love to have you there. Again, hackyourwealth.com slash FB. All right, let's jump in to today's interview. My guest today is Scott Stratton. Scott is the founder of Good Life Wealth Management, a registered investment advisor focused on helping individual investors achieve financial independence with a focus on tax efficiency. Previously, he was the director of financial planning for another financial advisory firm focused on high net worth individuals, where he was responsible for researching matters related to asset allocation, taxes, and social security. Prior to that, he worked as a financial advisor at GS Wealth Management, and he holds both the CFA and CFA. CFP designations. He's also the author of a book called Your Last Five Years, Making the Transition from Work to Retirement. And in a prior life, he was a music professor. Scott, thanks so much for joining us today to share insights and tips on capital gains taxes. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. I'd love to start out a little bit more uh, about learning about your background. Can you tell us about kind of what, like, tell us a little bit about your background and what kind of advisory work you do when it comes to capital gains taxes specifically? Absolutely. So I didn't study finance in college. I was actually a music major, uh, but I took economics courses for fun, and it was always a keen interest and, and passion of mine. And uh, I got out of college, had my doctorate. I was teaching at a university, uh, but I was spending most of my time investing and thinking about investments and stocks. And uh, within about five years, I was making more in the stock market than I was from being a music teacher. And so that's really what got me interested in financial planning, wanting to do it for myself and to take my background as an educator and being able to think about research and explain abstract concepts and be able to help people and take that impact to helping people with their finances. The uh, tax portion has already been a really important part. Before I became a financial advisor, I was, was day trading stocks and this was uh, after the tech bubble had melted down. And so I wanted to stay away from large cap stocks. And so I was day trading small cap companies. And at the end of the year, I looked back and realized I had made about a, a 28% gain doing all short-term trades. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is great. I've done way better than the S&P 500. Really proud of what I had accomplished, put in a lot of time. And then I looked up what the index had done for small cap value, which is the area I was trading. And it did 28%. So I had spent a tremendous amount of time to trade myself and do exactly the same return as I would have had if I just done an index fund. 
But to add insult to injury, I now had to pay short-term capital gains taxes on it as if, as opposed to just being in the index where I would have actually been able to have gotten long-term capital gains treatment. So at the end of the day, uh, it was a lesson to learn that the taxes really do matter. And then as a professional working with high net worth investors, most of their money is outside of an IRA, outside of a 401k. And there your decisions really make a big impact. Okay, excellent. Um, so you know, most folks in my audience are going to know what capital gains taxes are. So I wanted instead to, to get into some kind of nitty gritty specifics. Um, so first, do capital gains taxes apply to any asset sale, no matter whether it's, you know, stocks and bonds or a house, boats, artwork, etc.? Are there any major asset classes where normal capital gains, the normal capital gains tax regime does not apply or where it applies differently? Yeah, there are a couple of situations that are exceptions to the normal capital gains rules. You know, so the first, of course, is your primary residence. So thinking about your home, when you sell a primary residence, there's a capital gains exclusion. As long as that was your residence for two out of the past five years, there's a, an exclusion of $250,000 single or $500,000 uh, if you're married filing jointly. So that's if it's your personal residence. Uh, another exception is for collectibles. And so when we talk about collectibles, when the IRS says collectibles, they're talking about art, antiques, rare coins, rare stamps, uh, but also things like gold and silver and not just owning bullion, but actually even the ETFs for gold and silver. Those also count as collectibles. And those are taxed at a 28% long-term capital gains rate which is uh, a little bit unusual because it creates some different planning scenarios. First of all, if you can hold those in an IRA, that's gonna be more tax efficient than holding them in a taxable account because you're not able to get that lower capital gains rate. Uh, but second, if you're in a lower tax bracket, you might actually be better off selling them as a short-term capital gain before the one-year mark, rather than holding on and having it turn into a long-term capital gain and being at the 28%. Uh, so that's another area to consider. And then a third one would be looking at depreciation recapture. And so if you're buying a rental property, if you have rental real estate, investment real estate, and you're depreciating that asset over time, uh, let's say you buy a house for $300,000 and you depreciate $100,000 of that. So now your cost basis is only $200,000. Now, if you go and you sell it for $350,000, You've got a $50,000 capital gain and $100,000 of depreciation recapture. That's called a 1250. And uh, that is going to be taxed at 25%. So those are kind of some of the big exceptions uh, to the normal capital gains rules. And then the 50 is also covered by 1031 if you buy another property, right? Right. So that's one of the great ways of avoiding that uh, depreciation recapture and the capital gains is by rolling your investment property into a, a new one. Any other um, kind of major uh, differences uh, by asset class that you see are, the, are these kind of the big ones? Those are the main ones, you know, thinking about where you're holding things, your asset location, and so a lot of what I'm trying to do in optimizing portfolios for tax efficiency is finding the right asset class. Uh, I would say for investors who are investing in, in stocks and bonds, you have a couple of, of things to consider. Obviously, um, 
you can be much more efficient if you avoid short-term capital gains and always hold on to things for at least one year. Uh, when you have an exchange-traded fund, an ETF, usually those are very tax-efficient because they generally do not have capital gains distributions at the end of the year. Now, 2021 is shaping up to be a fantastic year for a lot of mutual funds. And for those actively managed mutual funds, when they trade inside of the portfolio, they're going to have a capital gains distribution at the end of the year to shareholders. And some of those are going to be pretty substantial here at the end of the year. So even if you haven't sold your mutual fund in a taxable account, it's very possible that you could still end up seeing a tax bill for those capital gains. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, can we dive into um, some of the specifics on the difference between short-term and long-term capital gains? And what do investors need to know about each? So I'm talking about things in like holding period, the rates and, um, you know, the sequencing of offsets, et cetera. Uh, maybe you could start comment kind of broadly and then I have a bunch of specific questions. Absolutely. So your short term capital gains are assets that are held less than a year. Long term are more than a year. Currently, there are three tax rates for long term capital gains, 0 percent, 15 percent and 20 percent. Most people are going to fall into that 15 percent category. Uh, however, if you're in kind of the lowest tax bracket, you could be potentially at the 0% capital gains rate for long-term capital gains. And so that would be for 2021, a married couple with taxable income of less than $80,800 or a single tax filer with taxable income of less than $40,400. So for those people, if you're at that 0% capital gains rate, it can make a lot of sense to actually harvest your gains uh, on a regular basis to avoid allowing them to accrue, or if you think your income is going to be a lot higher in future years. So paying a little bit of taxes every year or harvesting a little bit of the gains so you don't have to pay taxes at the 0% rate can be very good. And so sorry, just, just to clarify, that means selling and then buying back, right? Right. When you say harvesting the gains. Yeah, selling and then buying back. So uh, if you have a gain there's no wash sale rule. Mm -hmm. So when you have a gain, you can sell it and buy it back right away. The wash sale rule only applies to harvesting losses. And just very briefly, for those who are not, uh, maybe a little rusty, what is the wash sale rule? So the wash sale rule in a taxable account, if you sell something for a loss, uh, you cannot buy it back either 30 days before or 30 days after of a substantially identical security. And this is just to keep you from, from taking the loss and then and immediately buying it back. You have to wait at least 30 days. Uh, the way that usually works for myself as a portfolio manager is if I'm using exchange-traded funds and I were to sell out of the Vanguard 500 index, I could immediately, though, go into another large-cap ETF, either from Vanguard or from iShares or, or State Street or one of the competitor ones. So as long as it's not identical you can go back into a similar security right away. I don't recommend people wait 30 days uh, unless you absolutely have to have that stock or that fund. You're better off finding one that's similar and uh, just doing the substitution. And um, by substantially identical, because uh, there's like, there isn't like very crystal clear guidance from the IRS on this, so, but there's lots of like examples and stuff. Uh, and I was curious, you know, there are some obvious ones, like if you, um, uh, you know, if you, I don't know, if you sell Amazon and then you buy Nike, okay, those are clearly not substantially identical. But like if I sell Vanguard, just the plain vanilla S&P 500 fund, and I buy Fidelity's version of that, how do I know whether or not that's substantially identical? 
I would try to avoid that one of uh, particularly of a S&P 500 index fund because that could be potentially the same holdings. Although I've heard some people say that that's okay because it's a different expense ratio or it might be managed a little bit differently. So I don't want to find it to try to shave it that thin. Um, another example of one where they do say it's substantially identical is options. So if you had Amazon, you can't sell your Amazon stock and then buy an option on Amazon stock, that would be considered substantially identical. Got it. Are there any individual stock trades that could potentially be considered substantially identical or would all those be considered not? Uh, there could be. I'd be careful of doing ones that were different share classes of the same company. But different companies? Different companies, no problem. Okay. Um, uh, so, sorry for the sidetrack a little bit, but just getting kind of back, you were talking about the three different tax rates for long-term gains. And then at what, um, there's the, the healthcare surcharge, the, N, um, the NIIT tax 3.8%. When does that kick in again? Yes. Right. So on top of your capital gains tax, long-term capital gains tax, there's the net investment income tax, the NIIT. It's commonly just referred to as the Medicare surcharge. And so that's an additional 3.8% tax that goes on any passive or investment income. So that will apply to any capital gains. That kicks in at $200,000 single, $250,000 married. So the real long-term capital gains rates then are 0% and then 15% once you hit $80,000 of income married. And then if you're married, then at 250, you're going to go up to 18.815 plus the additional 3.8. And then everyone who is in the 20% long-term capital gains rate, which is, is currently $501,600, uh, everyone who is in that tax bracket, the 20% long-term capital gains rate, is also going to be hit with that Medicare surtax of 3.8. So uh, all of those people will be in the 23.8% long-term capital gains rate. Got it. Okay. So that's the long-term side. Can you talk a little bit about the short-term side? Yeah. Short-term capital gains uh, mean that they're going to be taxed as ordinary income. So that's going to fall into your ordinary income tax bracket of 10, 12, 22, 24, and so on. Okay. That's, that's pretty straightforward. Um, okay. So then when in a year in which you are, um, you know, selling assets that is going to, uh, um, in like that's going to result in a a, rec a tax recognizable gain. Can you talk a little, little bit about but the sequencing of how uh, gains and losses are offset? Because um, I understand this part there is there is actually some sequencing rules, and and maybe your tax software will just take care of it for you. But for folks to know for planning purposes, you know, how should folks be thinking about what just you know kind of like what the, the flat rules are for short and long-term gains and losses in the sequencing of offsets. Right. So the first thing is that you always offset like-kind trades. So that means we're going to group all of your short-term trades together and all of your long-term trades together. So you're looking at all of your short-term trades. Does that end up with a net gain or a net loss? Then you'll look at all of your long-term trades and see if any of those together as a group have a net gain or a net loss. 
Uh, and so that's where typically the two would both apply tax-wise. So if you have a short-term gain and you have a long-term gain, you pay the short-term rate on the short-term and you pay the long-term rate on the long-term capital gains. Uh, if, however, you have a loss in one of those categories, you can use it to offset the other. So let's say you have a gain on the long-term side, but you have some short-term losses. You can use those short-term losses to offset your long-term capital gains. Of course, that's less valuable because the short-term rate is higher. The ideal thing is you want to try to offset those short-term gains or preferably not have any short-term gains that you've realized. Got it. Um, and then, so I want to circle back to that here in a moment, but then can you also talk about the, the ordinary income, the annual ordinary income offset and the carryover rules? Right. So if you have a net loss in both, when you combine both your short and long-term and you have a net loss for the entire year, you can take $3,000 of that and count that against your ordinary income. So that could be salary or wages or your other types of income that you have. And then any loss can be carried forward indefinitely. Now, the nice thing about that is if you have a long-term loss, uh, the gain would only be 15% potentially that you'd be offsetting. But if you can now use that to offset your ordinary income, that might be at a higher rate. You might be in the 24% tax bracket, but only paying 15% on capital gains. So if you can strategically try to harvest those long-term losses and then use them to offset ordinary income, you're getting a little bit of arbitrage of, of using a lower rate to offset a higher rate. Got it. Um, and if I, as I recall, the uh, the three thousand is never adjusted for inflation, right? It's just frozen. It, it doesn't have an. It has not. Right. Yeah. So it does not have an annual congressional adjustment like many other things in the tax code do. Correct. Yeah, that's just been stuck there. Okay. Um, so you can roll over indefinitely, but it's kind of like an interest-free loan from the government. Uh, that you give to the government uh, effectively until you use it up, right? Well, the nice thing is that you're holding that so that way you can uh, offset future gains. So the next year, if you have a really big year and you decide you want to harvest a lot of gains, you're able to do that. It also gives you a little bit of budget to do things like rebalance, or uh, if you're going into retirement, you can harvest some of those and not pay any taxes on them. So in the the subsequent year, let's say you, you did all that, you took your 3000 but you still have losses left over. Uh, at the end of the year, you carry them forward. And the next year, like, does the same sequencing apply? So you look first for a like kind uh, gain to offset against, or does it just go straight to offset your ordinary income? Uh, no, you, you will be looking for the like kind again. So you're retaining the character of the short-term and long-term losses from the previous year. Oh, I see. So uh, when uh, when you offset against ordinary income, the $3,000, that and you carry over the next year, you're going to have to remember, or maybe your tax software will remember it for you, or your tax advisor will remember it for you, so they know how to apply it the next year. Yeah, it'll show on it will show on your current tax return what the uh, the carry forward is. Okay. Um, that makes sense. And the carryover rules are the same, right? For for both short and long term, there there's there's no difference in in they're treated the same. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Um, so you talked a little bit about the, um, the like sort of, I guess, potential arbitrage opportunity, but I wanted to uh, really make that clear. So um, 
there's like basically four possible scenarios, right? You can have short-term gain and that gets offset against long-term loss. Like you could end up in that scenario. You could have long-term gain that gets offset against short-term loss. You could have short-term losses that get offset against long-term gain. And then the opposite, long-term losses get uh, offset against short-term gains. Some are better than others, obviously. So, um, so say the, it sounds like, like as an example, if you're, if your ordinary marginal rate is say 32%, but your capital gains rate is only say 15%. I don't know if that actually is, would actually be true, but hypothetically, uh, you sell at a long-term loss and, um, due to your just configuration of losses and gains, you're able to offset it against some short-term gain in the current tax year. So normally you'd be taxed ordinary income. So in this example, 32% on your short-term gain, but here, because you have some long-term loss, you can offset that and, and capture that arbitrage. And it sounds like um, you're not on the hook to pay the the gap, right? The difference between the two rates. That's just kind of like a benefit to, to you as a taxpayer. Is that correct? It is. That's the nice thing about that $3,000 a year is you can use that even if it is a long-term loss where you're only potentially saving 15% in gains, you can offset that against your, your ordinary income tax rate. And then, of course, the more unfortunate scenario is the sort of the opposite. You have a short-term loss, which is worth a high rate. Uh, right. You don't have a short-term gain to offset against, so you offset against long-term gain and you kind of lose that arbitrage opportunity, I guess. Is that right? Yeah. And if that was the case, you could look if there was a short-term position that you wanted to get out of, that would be a good time to harvest that that short-term loss. You know, to use that loss to offset a, a short-term gain if there was a position that you wanted to to sell. Um, you know, in general, I, I try not to trade frequently now. And so I'm mainly focused on on long-term gains. However, when we have an opportunity to sell like March of last year, uh, I did a tremendous amount of, of tax swaps where I'd sell out of one ETF that was at a loss and buy a similar ETF. And some cases we're able to lower our expense ratio or get into a little more liquid fund or get into a fund that was you know, virtually identical, but to harvest those, those losses, which ended up being quite beneficial. And now we do have some tax loss, tax losses that we can apply even for several years into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Are there, um, I don't know, any like tips or pointers that you will commonly advise to clients or just to, you know, kind of investors slash taxpayers on how to manage their short and long-term gains sort of strategically. So they're, they're, if they are ever in the situation, they're on the, um, the beneficial side of the arbitrage rather than the, um, you know, kind of the, the side that hurts them. If that makes sense. I think it's probably more important just to look at trying to maintain their overall targets within the portfolio. So, uh, we do a lot of optimization for taxes, but at the same time, we have to make sure we don't let the, the taxes become kind of the, the primary determining factor. You know, it's relatively easy to, to make trades because there's so many thousands of exchange traded funds where you can do this in a very tax efficient way. And so every December, we'll look at this. And then when there's a big tax dislocation, we'll also be looking at this as well in all of our taxable accounts, how to best manage these gains and losses. Okay. Um, all right. So speaking of harvesting, because we've kind of been talking about it uh, a good deal, can you can you explain a little bit about you know what harvesting losses and harvesting gains entails? Like, how does it work um, uh, tactically? Absolutely. So for people who are in that zero percent long term capital gains rate, 
I think it does make sense to try to harvest some of those gains on an annual basis. Uh, if you think that there's going to be higher tax rates in the future, you might also want to be trying to harvest some of those gains on a, a regular basis. There might be some changes to tax law that would also encourage people to harvest some of those gains going forward. You know, as far as harvesting the losses, I think for most people doing that on an annual basis or when you move quite a bit and, and really need to rebalance the portfolio, that's the time to look at are there any losses to harvest as well. In general, when we're thinking about rebalancing a portfolio, if you're rebalancing back to a target, you're looking to sell your winners. Hmm. So the process of rebalancing is always taking what has moved up and bringing it back down to the target level. So usually in the rebalancing process, we're not uh, harvesting losses, we're harvesting our winners. Uh, but in order to offset the gains that we have in those winning positions, we're looking at what are other positions where we can make a swap to harvest that loss. That way we can make that rebalancing trade and offset the gains. Okay, got it. So, and for, for sort of do-it-yourselfers, um, are there any good systems or tools besides maybe just spreadsheets for keeping track of and helping you manage your harvesting efforts? Because, um, you know, you have to keep track of all your purchase dates and basis amounts to make sure you can sell at the tax-appropriate time and actually intentionally book a, t a loss or a gain. Sure. Uh, I don't use any separate system outside of my custodian. So my accounts are held at TD Ameritrade and they have their gains keeper process, which shows the lot level. You know, I'd say the other thing to consider is if you're doing exchange traded funds or stocks and you have multiple purchase dates, you can go in and look at the actual lot level of those purchases. So you might have an average cost basis, but you might have some shares that you purchased at a lower price or some that you purchased at a higher price. So when you're doing those trades or you're doing rebalancing and you're not liquidating the entire position, it does uh, make a, it worth the time to go and look at what the actual cost basis is on those different lots. So you can sell the one that's either going to give you the biggest loss or the smallest gain to realize and defer those taxes down the road even a little further. Got it. Okay, cool. So it sounds like nothing fancy there. Um, any other tips or strategies you have that investors should keep in mind? Uh, when doing loss or gain harvesting so that they harvest as you know effectively and efficiently as possible? Well, one other thing to consider is uh, is charitable, the side, mm -hmm. charitable side of things. So you can always donate appreciated securities. I have a number of clients who tithe or who give a substantial amount to, to charities. And uh, rather than giving cash, you can donate appreciated securities. You get the full tax write-off of the fair market value on the day of the donation and you avoid the taxable gain. So if you have positions that have a very large gain, rather than donating cash, you can, can give away those appreciated securities. Similarly, if you're providing funds to maybe some children who are in college or just out of college, instead of giving them cash, you could give them the securities. And if they're in that bracket where they're gonna be at the 0% capital gains, then they could take that money, sell it, sell the stock, get the cash, and they would pay 0% capital gains and you would avoid paying the capital gains on that. So that's, that's one of the other considerations for people if they're looking at uh, what to do with some of these highly appreciated securities. Oh, interesting. So let me circle back to the, 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 char the charitable um, strategy here in a moment. But you mentioned, so is this like giving, so did I hear correctly? You're, so you're saying giving some stock to uh, say your children who might be in a zero, bra a zero bracket and they would sell at their zero rate. Is that, did I hear that correctly? Right. So this wouldn't be for young children because the kiddie tax would apply. This would be for your adult children who are independent hmm. and, um, uh, would be paying tax at their own income tax rate. 
And so that would just that would be subject to just like gift tax rule all gift tax rules. Is that correct? It would be treated as if right. it was a gift. So yep. um uh so I guess something to keep in mind, like if, if you're optimizing for that, then you want to kind of have both both in mind as you uh as you make as you plan such a gift. Is that fair to say? Right. So if you have adult children and you're trying to use the gift tax exemption every year of giving them fifteen thousand dollars, or if you're a married couple giving thirty thousand dollars a year, rather than giving the cash, you could give depreciated securities. And uh, it's especially beneficial, obviously, if your kids are in that lowest tax bracket and aren't going to pay any taxes on that. If they mm. will pay taxes on it, they might not be so happy, but uh, <laughs> yeah. hopefully they'll still appreciate it anyways. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Okay, cool. Um, on the charitable front, so you donate appreciated securities to charity. Uh, you get a write-off on that. The recipient gets a hundred percent step up in basis, as I understand, right, to fair market value. So they don't, if they were to sell around, sell it, you know, five minutes after they received it, they wouldn't pay taxes on that either. Is that correct? They won't pay any taxes because they're a nonprofit. So a charity won't pay any uh, income taxes on those capital gains. I I see, but there's it's because of the charitable status, not because they get a step up. Uh, they don't get a step up. It's because they're of the charitable status. So if you were to give to an individual like your child. There's, there's no step up in that. The step up uh, occurs usually just at death that we're talking about a step up. All right, 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 right. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Now, one of the interesting proposals right now in Washington is to do away with the step up in basis. Hmm. And so that's one of the ways that they're looking to pay for the infrastructure bill. And instead, they would have a $1 million uh, lifetime exemption. So if you had more than a million dollars of capital gains at death, your heirs would have to pay for the uh, capital gains at that time. Under the, I guess that's the proposal, under the, um, uh, under the, 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 the then in effect capital gains tax regime or under some new, new tax rate structure? Well, there's a couple of proposals that are gonna hit people simultaneously here. So if we're looking at estate planning here, that's where we're gonna see kind of the biggest impact. So there's three things that are proposed right now. They haven't been passed, but all three would apply to estate planning. Uh, so the first is the elimination of the step up in basis. And instead, there'd be that $1 million exemption. So if you had a, a $5 million estate, you might have way more than a million dollars in capital gains if you're looking at businesses and real estate and stocks and other assets. Uh, the second thing that we're looking at is changing the top capital gains rate. So currently, that top rate is at 20%. The proposal in Washington right now is to take that uh, up to 39.6 to make it the same as ordinary income. And what they say is, well, you know, all these billionaires, they're getting off easy because most of their money, most of their income is from capital gains, but we ought to be treating that as ordinary income. However, if you pass away and now your kids don't have a step up in basis uh, and they suddenly have one or two or $3 million in capital gains, well, they're going to be just for one year in that situation of being taxed at 39.6% in capital gains. And then the third piece of this puzzle is they're looking at lowering the estate tax exemption. There was actually a proposal to lower it from the current 11.7 million down to three and a half million. So you put that together and anybody who's over three and a half million, their heirs could be paying really three new taxes that they wouldn't be paying today. Hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Um, interesting. What, um, you know, so these these are the 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 sort of 
tax change proposals that are coming from the Biden administration right now, what is the likelihood that some or all of the Biden proposal actually gets passed into law? Can the Senate clear it when it's, at least at the time of this recording, divided 50-50 just through budget reconciliation? On the face of it, it seems like they could. Um, how should investors be setting their expectations of passage in this regard? I've been looking at this, and I, I don't know that I can make a bet on whether or not this is all going to be passed. Um, However, there's only so many ideas for how to raise new revenue, and there isn't, I think, the stomach to raise new revenue by raising taxes on middle-class people. And so uh, taxing the rich is, is going to be very popular, and I think these proposals will be around until they do get enacted. And so I don't know whether or not they'll get passed here in this term or not, but these ideas, I think, are going to stick around until they do end up becoming reality in, in some format or another. I'm hoping there'll be some compromise and maybe they'll be not as bad as it looks like now for some of my clients. But uh, I feel like the likelihood of these getting passed in the next couple of years is probably pretty high. Hmm. Okay. Um, so what portfolio adjustments might investors potentially consider doing now to take advantage of uh, or just act defensively uh, in, in anticipation of any expected changes coming to the capital gains tax system? Are there any things? Well, I think if, if you're expecting there to be higher rates, there are some things that you'll want to do. So if you think you're going to be in that top tax bracket and your capital gains rate is going to go from 23.8 to 39.6, or really 43.4 by the time you add in that Medicare surtax, uh, you'll probably want to harvest some gains now, even look at selling businesses before the end of the year if you can. Uh, certainly the other thing to remember is that the current income tax rates are set to sunset after 2025, and then we'll go back to some slightly higher rates. I don't think there's much possibility that those increases will not occur. Certainly the government needs the revenue from how much they're spending. Uh, so I do anticipate the taxes will be higher in the future, which means that right now is also a good time to be looking at Roth conversions. Okay, cool. So, um, more broadly, any any major tax planning strategies that investors may want to potentially consider, for instance, at year end before close of tax year, in order to just be as you know tax efficient as possible when it comes to managing their capital gains, uh, like for example, like what are key strategies you advise your own clients to do to ensure that they're minimizing their their tax liability when they're evaluating their own capital gains exposure? What kind of separate and apart from the 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 um, the Biden proposal on changing capital gains. I'm just sort of um, talking more generally. Sure. Well, the good news is that there is a lot that you can do to control your own taxes for the time being. Uh, certainly your asset location is going to be very important. Choosing exchange traded funds over mutual funds that generate capital gains. Uh, as you're rebalancing, if you're adding money to the portfolio, Rather than selling things and taking those gains on, look at just using your new money to go into the areas that are underweight. So rebalancing can be both done through buying and selling, but also can be done through uh, other means like turning dividends on and off. Uh, so you're reinvesting in the areas that you need to bring up, not reinvesting in areas that are already overweight, and then adding cash strategically to your areas that are underweight. And then although asset location usually suggests that we have an efficient location in IRAs or taxable accounts for certain assets. Uh, when it comes to rebalancing, it can be a little bit helpful if you have assets in both. So if you have an emerging markets fund in a taxable account and you have an emerging markets fund in your retirement account, if it goes way up in the taxable account, you can leave it there. 
if it goes way down, you'll want to harvest the loss from the taxable account. Um, but if it does go way up, rather than selling the one that was in your taxable account, trim it from the one in the retirement account. So if you have fairly equal size taxable and retirement accounts, then uh, that can also work very well to spread out the assets across both. Hmm. By the way, do you generally, um, are there any scenarios where an asset, you know, currently at a loss where it would not make sense um, in the grand scheme of things to harvest that loss? Or do you recommend always harvesting the loss? Uh, perhaps it was something illiquid or if you were willing to hold on to that stock for 10 years and, and you weren't really concerned about it. Okay. Uh, the other thing to think about is if it was a uh, non-publicly traded. So there is something called the, uh, what's it called? It's called the Qualified Small Business Stock Program. Mm. And uh, this is a program for companies that have less than $50 million in assets. If they want to raise money, they can bring in an angel investor. And if you hold that stock for at least five years, uh, there's zero capital gains on it. Mm. Up to 10 times your gains or $10 million, whichever is greater. And so this has been something that uh, has become popular with some of these startup companies. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, uh, one thing I forgot to ask earlier when we were talking about the ch uh, charitable donations are donor advised funds. Um, can you talk a little bit about the differences between giving directly versus giving to a, a donor advised fund and when might you want to consider one over the other? Absolutely. So with a, a donor advised fund, you're giving the money this year, but you don't have to give it to the net charities necessarily this year. So when it goes into the donor advised fund, you're basically creating another account that you're setting aside for charitable donations. And so if you have a really big year due to the sale of a business or a huge bonus, uh, that can be a good year to put that money aside. And then maybe you then give it away to the charities over the next five or 10 years or more. And in this case, you get the upfront tax, tax deduction for making that charitable donation today. Now, one of the challenges we have in charitable giving today is that the standard deduction has gotten so large. So for a married couple, 25100 which means that if you're only giving $25,000 a year, you're not getting any tax deduction mm -hmm. for it. You know, last year you could get a $300 above the line deduction. They've actually doubled that this year for married couples to a $600 donate, uh, deduction above the line. Uh, but for people who are giving that $25,000 a year, you're not really getting any tax benefit. And so if you were to say, well, I'm planning to do this for the next five years, and you put in 125 today, you would get a nice tax deduction for that versus if you did 25 a year and got zero because you're taking the standard deduction. Got it. Okay. Helps. Uh, that's helpful. Makes sense. Um, Scott, I think those are all the questions I had uh, today. Where can people find out more about you, your work, your services, et cetera? Sure. Well, my website is goodlifewealth.com. My firm is Good Life Wealth Management. So you can look me up uh, at goodlifewealth.com or on Facebook at goodlifewealth. Okay. All right. We'll make sure we link to that in the show notes. Uh, Scott, thanks so much for talking to us today. Have my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. I have to say you've had some really great topics in the past on tax strategies and capital gains. So uh, I think I saw ones there about 1031 exchange, asset location, home sales, tax loss harvesting. So you've got some great resources here for folks. Congratulations. Cool. Thanks so much. Cheers.
All right, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's guest interview and got a lot of value and insights from it. If you like this episode, please hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically sent to you. Would love for you to not miss any episodes because the Hack Your World podcast has a mix of action-packed solo shows where I walk you through specific strategies and tactics step-by-step, as well as guests who share their expertise about specific areas of personal finance, and finally, profile interviews of business owners who are trying to turn their side hustles into fully financially self-sustaining passive income streams. We break down exactly what they do, how they do it, and how much they're earning. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that great content. Also, would love if you could help me out and take 30 seconds to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a podcast review. It helps to support this podcast and it helps other people who are looking for topics like this find the podcast. And I really appreciate it if you could take a minute and just leave an honest review. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Hack Your Wealth podcast with Andrew Chen. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes and check out hackyourwealth.com for all our latest content.